it's encouraging to hear God's grace kind of manifest in the lives of the saints. But I know for many of you, you're probably hearing it and thinking, well, that isn't my experience, that I've struggled with the Christian faith. I feel like it's two steps forward and three back. And why don't I have that experience? And I'm, I'm praying that today, uh, thinking about Jesus Christ being raised and ascended, passing through the heavens, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for the church, I'm praying that this truth, particularly out of Hebrews 4, would be able to give you hope, encourage you, both for the believer that you would be encouraged to continue to press on for that upward call of Christ, but for the non-Christian to consider these things and to, to weigh your life in the balance as God sees it. So if you'd turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4, I'm just going to read 14 and 15 and 16, just three small verses. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in 14. We read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, the the book of Hebrews is really a sermon, and the sermon is about encouraging the believer to persevere in the faith. And, and, And the sermon is written holding Jesus Christ up as great, greater than all things. And because of his greatness, If we fix our eyes on him, we will persevere in faith with joy. In fact, the four chapters prior to where we are right now, in chapter 4, Jesus is greater than all the prophets of the Old Testament. Jesus is greater than the angels of heaven. Jesus is greater than Moses, and Jesus is is greater than Joshua. And so here we find ourselves in in chapter 4, he's even greater than the high priest. Now, if we were to continue on, really chapters 5 through 10 speak about the nature of his greatness as a high priest. We're just going to look at it. We're just going to open it up today. But, But the word that this writer has for us is that Jesus is the great high priest. Now, let me draw your mind back to the Old Testament where we learn about the high priest. The high priest, the first one being Aaron. That is Moses' brother. The high priest was a, was a critical role in the life of Israel. Excuse me. The high priest was a critical role in the life of Israel. The high priest was really a mediator, an intercessor for the people. He would bring in the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, appealing to God for the people. So this is a critical role. But with this Levitical priesthood, with this priesthood of Aaron, it was built with natural limitations and inadequacies. When you think about the Old Testament priest, you think of just limitations. They were limited by life, right? So all the old priests, Aaron and Aaron's son and Aaron's grandson, and as it passed through the lineage of Aaron, they all died. They they had these short lives. One high priest had to be replaced by another high priest and had to be replaced by another high priest. But they weren't just limited in their lifespan. They were limited in their access. So when the high priest, he would only be able to go into the presence of God one time per year. And this would have been a terrifying experience. 
they would have bells around the hem of his garment to make sure that he was still alive as they heard him tinkering about in the presence of God. Many think that they attached a rope to his ankle. In case that he sinned before the presence of God, he would be struck dead. He wouldn't be able to walk out. Nobody could go in and get him. They would have to pull him out. And so he would only go in there one time a year to appeal to God on behalf of the people. He wasn't just limited in life and limited in access to God. He was limited in efficacy, in his effectiveness. In other words, here was a man who had his own sin bringing in the blood of a sacrifice. And he was bringing in the blood of bulls and goats. He wasn't even, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away and atone for the sin of human beings before God. So it had to be repeated year after year after year. It was limited in its efficacy. But now you turn your eyes to Jesus, this great high priest. He's not limited in life. Look at what it says. He's passed through the heavens. The implication is he's died, he's been raised, and now he's ascended to be with God at his right hand. Jesus even told John on the island of Patmos, he said, I was dead, but now I'm alive forever and ever. Jesus will always be a high priest. There'll be no substitute for Jesus. There'll there'll be no subsequent Messiah. There'll be no follow-up mediator. Jesus has a Messiahship. He has a priesthood that is eternal. In fact, in chapter 7 of Hebrews, if you were to read forward, you would find this, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So the Jesus that has saved you and the Jesus that intercedes for you is the same. He will always represent us to God. But he's not just unlimited in life. He is unlimited in access to the Father. Think about that, passing through the heavens. Now, the heavens are part of a created order, right? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He passes through the heavens. He didn't pass into the heavens, but through the heavens, out of the created order, to the very side of God. He's outside of all things, forever with the Father, interceding for us. He, he stands above all things for us. He isn't part of this created order anymore, but he stands to minister to us in this created order. So glorious and great is he. Who could pass through the heavens? We read this in Hebrews 7. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he also lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, outside the heavens, is where Christ sits with the Father in perfect glory for us, his church. Is he not a great high priest? But not only is he great in being above the heavens, He's great in his efficacy. Unlike the priest having to bring the blood of bulls and goats year after year, even for himself, Jesus brings himself as the sacrifice, a perfect atoning blood. And he doesn't bring it into a a man-made holy of holies. He brings it to the very throne of mercy, God. And he offers himself for us. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of bulls and goats, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. 
an eternal redemption. Jesus has not just borne our sin, but he has lived a life of perfect righteousness. So you and I are not saved just because our sins have been taken away. That's what theologians call a passive righteousness. But we're saved by his active righteousness. He was without sin. So he, he brings his perfect merits to the Father as a priest. And he offers himself and he says, my life for them. And we know what God thought of Jesus. He says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. God didn't say that about us. He said that about himself. Can you mute me for a second, Stephen? Got to shed the jacket. Sorry, guys. I've been dying to do that. You can turn me on, Stephen. It's a mechanical issue. I'm not trying to set new standards here. So, so he gave an, an active righteousness to the Father and bearing our sins is a passive righteousness. So he, as a high priest, has done what no high priest could do. And that's why he says in here, look at the end of 14. He says, let us hold fast our confession. In other words, he's saying, grip tightly this truth. For the believer here, grip tightly that he has done all this work for us. Our confession is that unshakable hope that we have that God is for us and will draw us to himself. This confession is that Jesus Christ is the high priest, the high priest that is the Son of God. So he's lived a perfect life and his merits are for us. He's the high priest. He's borne our sin and shame. He's mediated between us and God. We are now forever reconciled to God. This is the glory of the gospel that he has borne our sin and shame and our guilt, and he's reconciled us to God. There is nothing, as Ray prayed, there's nothing that we bring but our sin. But bring your sin, by all means. Bring your sin, because he is sufficient to wash you of that. We hold fast this confession. This is for the believer. You hold fast. You grip tightly. You hold fast to the truth of Jesus Christ. You fix your eyes on him who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, who then sat down at the right hand of God. You hold fast to that. Now, I know that there are some folks here, I imagine, that are looking at Christianity. You're not convinced in its truthfulness and its historicity. Perhaps you're just wondering, but you may be more antagonist, or um, uh, you may be more of an agnostic. You're not sure, but you're looking into it. This is ground zero for you to investigate. This is the Holy Grail. This is the foundation of the faith. It, 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 in, in this spot right here, Jesus ascending to the heavens, this is where Christianity is most vulnerable and most glorious. You know, Paul had the intellectual honesty in 1 Corinthians 15 to say, you know what, if Christ is not raised, we are men to be pitied. We are meant to be pitied, not just for believing a lie, but for propagating a lie. But, but this is where it all sits, right here. And, and, and for, the, for the investigator of Christianity, uh, don't look at the faults of the followers. That's, that's not going to indicate the veracity of this. It's you look at the resurrection. You look at the uniqueness of Christianity. I saw this on a recent blog. The difference between the world's religions and Christianity. Here's what was written. 
This is how the world's religions started. All of them fall into this definition. After a public ministry, Christ, excuse me, private dreams about God or private angelic encounters about God or private ideas about God, then one person told everyone what he saw. That is how the bulk of the world's religions were started, this private revelation or an angelic encounter. And then one person see, one person then tells what they saw. This is how Christianity was started. After a public ministry, Christ was killed publicly. Christ rose from a public tomb publicly. Christ publicly showed himself to the public. Then the public told everyone what they saw. This is where you want to investigate. But I want to remind you that as you investigate the nature of this faith, all of us in this room are holding fast to something. We are. We're all gripping something to give us value and meaning. We're all gripping something to give us purpose and safety in this world. I don't know what it is for you. I don't know if it's the job that you have, the relationships that you have. I don't know if it's financial security. I don't know if it's the hope of this position that you want to attain. I don't know what it is that gives you meaning and value. But do any of those things endure? Do any of those things last? Can any of those things lead you to God? Can any of those things remove the guilt that bears on your soul? Do any of those things do that? Jesus Christ stands as high priest, willing to wash you, cleanse you from your sin. This is how we become a Christian. The way you become a Christian is you begin to realize the guilt and the shame of your life begin to press down upon you. And you begin to realize you don't have it all. You can't appeal to God based upon what you've done. You can't go to church enough times or do enough Christian things. And so you finally are crushed under the weight of your sin, and you realize that Jesus has come to pay for your sin and to establish you in righteousness, and you appeal to him by faith. You fix your eyes on him, you cast your eye on him, and you seek to be saved through him and by him. You ask him to be your mediator. You ask him to deliver you to the Father in safety. That's how it is to become a Christian. I would encourage you. Those of you investigating, questioning, I would encourage you to consider those things. He stands as a great high priest. He's great in majesty. For the believer here, consider what it means for you that he's passed through the heavens. What does that mean to you? How does that not destroy the fears standing before you? How does that not give you hope for this life? How does that not enable you, even in the face of cancer or job loss or marital struggles or financial trials? He stands above the heavens ministering to you, calling you to believe, to anchor your soul on Christ. Now, you won't do this alone. You'll only do this through the, through the community of faith, all through the book of Hebrews. You're encouraging one another. You're confessing to one another. You're loving one another. Holding fast is by community. It's not individual. You cannot hold fast alone. God has so designed the faith that we hold fast in community. But this is where kind of some of the rub is, isn't it? There's a struggle here. Because many of us right now, we don't feel like we hold fast. We don't feel like we have gripped tightly this confession of faith. We kind of feel like we've failed. 
we feel like we faltered. So here, this first part in verse 14, I'm holding up to you that Jesus is great in majesty, and that's distance-causing. It kind of causes us to fear alone and, and vulnerable and weak, and we failed. That's why I love 15 and 16. Because this Jesus is not just great in majesty, he's great in sympathy. Look at what he says in 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Is this not good news? That he is, he is not just majestic and transcendent, but he's sympathetic to us? It is incredible to me. When you look at the Greek gods, I mentioned this to you a few weeks back, when you look at the Greek gods, you find that they were known for their apatheia, their apathy, their emotionlessness. They didn't look at creation with care and concern. They were distant, and they were fine to be distant. But Jesus is great, not just in majesty, but in sympathy. The word sympathy, it, it means it isn't that I feel bad. To be sympathetic in this Greek word is to be in union with the one suffering. So consider this for a minute. Consider this. If you're a mother and your child is suffering greatly in some deep travail, are you distant from that child? Any mother here, do you not feel as if you're now in union with the suffering of your child? This is the kind of union that Jesus has with his sympathy. He's great in sympathy towards us. And he's great in sympathy because he has become like us. This is the beauty of the incarnation. He took our flesh and blood. He, he, he went through sleeplessness, poverty, struggle, physical pain, rejected. He was hated. He suffered as we suffered. He was tempted as we were tempted. But here's the good news, yet without sin. Now, for many of you, you think, well, you know, he never sinned. He doesn't really know the power of temptation. He doesn't really understand it. Well, let me remind you of something. Because he didn't sin doesn't mean he didn't suffer as you and I do. I would argue that he bore more acutely the weight of temptation. Why? He, he endured the sting of suffering and the sting of temptation to its bitter end. He exhausted the suffering of temptation. In fact, C.S. Lewis has a, a word about this. He says, a silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not giving in. You find out the strength of the wind by walking against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply doesn't know what it would have been like an hour later. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he is the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. This is what Jesus has done for us. He's sympathetic to you in weakness. He's sympathetic to you in the struggle. And his sinlessness doesn't make him less sympathetic. 
that makes him more. Listen to Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of the 18th century in London. He says, Do not imagine that if the Lord had sinned, he would have been any more tender toward you. For sin always is of a hardening nature. If the Christ of God could have sinned, he would have lost the perfection of his sympathetic nature. It needs perfection of heart to lay self all aside and to be touched with the feeling of the infirmities of others. That's Jesus for us. He is sympathetic. Is this not good news? I mean, is this not, are you not thankful that, that in your infirmities, in your failures, in your failing to hold fast, that he is sympathetic to you? This is why the encouragement comes in verse 16. Look at what he says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you see what he's doing? The writer is saying he's majestic and he's great, but he's also sympathetic. He's great in sympathy, and he's bidding you and I to come forward, to come to him, to come to his throne of grace. Now listen, thrones are not normally described as gracious. They're normally terrifying. If you have failed and you're brought before a throne of justice or judgment, that's a terrifying thing. Who wants to go before a throne of a king when you're filled with sin and brokenness and failure? Who wants to go to that throne? No one would want to. Judgment and justice comes out. But what about this? It's a throne of grace. Jesus Christ has transformed a throne of judgment to a throne of grace by bearing our sin and taking our punishment. And now God is graciously disposed to us and he's inviting us in, not just inviting us in, he's inviting you in to speak to God with confidence. And that word for confidence means means free and open communication, a frank boldness with God. You can speak to him. You can come to him with openness. Listen to what John Calvin, the great reformer of the 16th century, he said this, the basis of this confidence is that the throne of God is, mar- is not marked by a naked majesty, which would overpower us, but is adorned with a new name, that of grace. This is the name that we ought always to keep in mind when we avoid the sight of God. The glory of God cannot but fill us with despair, such is the awfulness of his throne. Therefore, in order to help our lack of confidence and to free our minds of all fears, the apostle clothes it with grace and gives it a name which will encourage us by its sweetness. It is as if if he were saying, since God has fixed on his throne a banner of grace and fatherly love towards us, there is no reason why his majesty should ward us off from approaching him. He is calling us forward. And you are to come with your weaknesses. Notice here that we are filled with weaknesses. That word for weakness means like moral infirmities, our brokenness, our failure and temptation. We succumb to temptation. We give in to temptation. And he's saying, come even with your weaknesses. Come even with the sins that you've committed. Go to this throne of grace. He's bidding us to come. Don't try to clean yourself up. Don't try to fix yourself up as if you're going to do something to offset the sins. No, run for the Christian who comes in the name of Jesus. Come to him. That's what he's bidding us to do. This is what supports and strengthens us. In fact, Paul Miller, a 
uh, a modern-day writer wrote in his book, Praying Life, he wrote these words about coming with your sin. He says, imagine that your prayer is a poorly dressed beggar, reeking of alcohol and body odor, stumbling toward the palace of a great king. You have become your prayer. As you shuffle towards the barred gate, the guards stiffen. Your smell has preceded you. You stammer out a message for the great king. I want to see the king. Your words are barely intelligible. But you whisper one final word, Jesus. I come in the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, as if by magic, the palace comes alive. The guards snap to attention. Bowing low in front of you, lights come on. The doors fly open. You're ushered into the palace, down a long hallway, into the throne room of a great king who comes running to you and wraps you in his arms. That is what it is to be accepted by God in the name of Jesus, even in your weakness. That we can come to God. This is a God of sympathy. We can come to him in our time of trial. In our time, he says, in our time of need for help. And that little word for help, it's only used one other time that I'm aware of. It's in Acts 17. And it's when Paul's journeying to Rome on the boat. And the boat is breaking apart in a storm. And, and, and what the sailors do is they run these cables beneath the boat. And the cables go around the hull of the boat, holding the boat together, keeping it from breaking apart. That word for support is the word for help. So when we come to him with our lives, we feel like our lives are breaking apart. Run to him, go to him, and seek his grace and mercy. That's what he's telling us to do. For us to hold fast, for us to finish strong, we have to hold fast. And how do we hold fast? By appealing to him for help. This is what the risen, crucified, risen, ascended Lord does for us. He bids us to himself, even though we stink like a drunk. And he's there to help us and hold our lives together. It's an incredible gift for us that he, as the risen king, would do that for us. And we're encouraged in Hebrews 10. He says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. This is the invitation. He's great in majesty. He's great in sympathy. He's kind. He's merciful. We don't need to fear. Coming in the name of Jesus, we, ne we need not fear coming to him anymore. You know, a few weeks back, I went on that conference in Louisville and uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, you've heard me and others quote him before. He was a great minister in Westminster Chapel in London in the mid-20th century. He was a very powerful man, both in the pulpit and out of the pulpit. A brilliant man, well-respected, world-known. And, and for people, and he would sit in his office, and people would come to his office and speak to him. And people spoke about the intimidation of this man, both his holiness, but his brilliance. His, his commitment to Scripture and his love for people. He was revered. He was respected. It was intimidating walking into his office. That's what they were testifying to. But on this panel was his grandson. And his grandson would say, and they asked him, how did you feel about walking into your, your grandfather's office? And he said, oh, I love going into his office. He would hide little pieces of candies. 
around the books, and all the grandchildren would come in and try to find the candies. They saw him as grandfather. They saw him as this loving grandfather that would take him up on his knee and hug him and give him pieces of candy and be so kind and compassionate with him. We as a church, we need to move without losing the reverence and the holiness of God, moving to see him, seeing him as a father, that we can appeal to him, we can come into him. Some of you right now are in real times of need. I know that. You have physical need, you have financial need, you have relational needs. He's inviting you. Why is it hard to hold fast? Because we don't come into his throne room in times of need. Do you know your neediness? The greatest problem that we have as a people is this, this crazy striving towards self-sufficiency and independence, a failure to recognize a need, our failure to be honest enough to say we are really broken, needy people, and we need the one who has what we have, what we need, and that's Jesus Christ. Some of you are tempted greatly right now. You're tempted to move in unethical ways to advance your own business or advance your own position. You're, you're, you're really tempted to satisfy your physical lusts through pornography, or through extramarital relationships, through alcohol, through relationships that are unhealthy. You're tempted. Appeal to him for grace and mercy. He will give you help in time of need. Some of you are fighting times of despair right now. That you're, you're, you're weary with life. You're weary with your marriage. You're weary with children. You're weary with those around you. Appeal to him. Ask him, give me grace and give me mercy. And when we appeal to mercy, mercy and grace are kind of interchangeable words, but, but, but mercy kind of has more of a backward look at the sins that I've committed. If you're burdened and you're guilted by your sin, repent before him, confess your sins. Let him, let him wash you with forgiveness. Or, or, or if you need grace for the future, or even for the present, even right now, ask him. Some of you don't want to come because of your sin. Perhaps this past week you've just been a disaster. God has been a million miles away from you. And you think, how am I going to get back with God? There is no getting back with God. It's simply falling on your face before him and appealing to him to have mercy. Help me, God. Help me, God. Give me grace that I can walk by faith. Give me grace that I can hold fast. Give me grace that I can pursue holiness. Give me grace that I'll pursue a greater and greater love for your people. Just ask him. Can you imagine if we came to terms with a biblical neediness, not the ugly neediness of our culture where everybody's broken, but, but a true recognition that apart from God, we need his unfathomable mercy and grace. But we come in the name of Jesus, who is great in majesty, and thankfully, he's great in sympathy. Let me just pray for us now and uh, ask him to apply these truths to our soul. Father, we thank you and praise you for the glory of Christ, that he is great in majesty, that he is great in sympathy. And so we come to him knowing that he is fully capable to serve us and to save us and to strengthen us so that we might hold fast this confession of faith. But we also come confidently because of his, his sympathy towards us. Father, we come in our weakness. We come in our inability to do it right and to do it well. And Father, we would ask in the name of Jesus that you would grant to us a grace, a deep, abiding, strengthening grace that you would support us, that you would cable us together, 
that we might hold fast, that we might walk by faith, that we might both declare and display and delight in your glory. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.